Welcome to the KISS FAQ Song Story Series. In this series, we'll focus on the histories of some of KISS's best and least known songs. In this episode, KISS's biggest hit, Beth, released on the band's Destroyer album in March 1976, is explored. That version was credited to Peter Chris, Stan Penridge, and Bob Ezrin. The song started out live as a joke piece in 1970, while Peter was still a member of the band Chelsea. It was originally titled Beck, and was almost a transcription of one of Chelsea guitarists' phone conversations with his wife. She was purportedly continuously calling him up and interrupting the band while they were rehearsing in New Jersey. According to Stan Penridge, it got to the point where I wrote down his remarks over a period of three or four days in what I called my wizard book. It was merely a small notebook I carried to jot down silly sayings, sketch in anything to save ideas. If you look at the lyrics and view them as a henpecked hubby's remarks to his nagging wife, you'll see what I mean. Just pause after every sentence and pretend there's a bitch on the other end of the line. Peter came up with the melody of the song, and then the two pieced the song together during train rides to and from Manhattan. A demo recording has circulated since the early 1990s, though Stan purportedly deleted a raunchy third verse. There was a rumor long ago that Peter and Stan, with their then-band Lips, had performed the song for future Casablanca president Neil Bogart while he was still at Kama Sutra Records in 1972. Stan denied that was the case. He recalled, That's one of Peter's stories. Bob Reno, vice president at Kama Sutra, is the guy I contacted and the person we auditioned for. He's the guy that paid for both five-song sessions. He also gave me the masters after Neil passed on Lips later that month. Actually, Beck is one of the only songs we didn't perform for Bob Reno or record during that session. At that point, it was still a joke song or a novelty tune. It's a raw recording that circulates, no doubt a result of the way it was originally recorded. Let's take a listen. Doctor, 
accounts vary about how the song came into consideration during the Destroyer sessions. Gene has suggested that Peter had sang part of the song, catching his attention while the two were in a limo after a show. After Kiss played a concert in Flint, Michigan in 1975, Peter and I were in a limousine together, and he was trying to sing something he called Beck, about a girl named Becky. I suggested that he change the name to Beth, both because it was a little easier to sing and because it would eliminate any misunderstanding that it was about Jeff Beck. He recommended that Peter present it to Bob Ezrin. In mid-1975, Kissett started work on the studio follow-up to Dress to Kill in between touring, constructing the Alive album, and fighting with the record label. For the previous album, they had not had enough time to write new songs while on the road, so they had resorted to recycling earlier material. Members of the band recorded all the ideas that they could come up with during sessions at Magnographic Studios for the producer, Bob Ezrin, to review. It was hoped that he could push the band artistically and take them to a similar level as he had done with Alice Cooper. But the material provided was pretty rough and underdeveloped. Anyone who has heard any of the Magnographic demos will realize that. Even Bob brought in material for the band to consider as recording sessions started. And in another version of the story, he reviewed some of Peter's old archival ideas. Whatever the case, in his autobiography, Peter recalled Bob reacting positively to hearing the song idea, commenting something to the effect, This is a ballad. I hear it on a baby grand. This is going to be a hit record. I'm going to get the New York Philharmonic to play on it. Positive praise indeed. Peter's appraisal was that Bob felt that the simple song spoke volumes. It wasn't a joke song about a band's rehearsals being interrupted. It resonated from the other perspective contained in the chorus. Won't you wait an hour, and I'll run right home to you. A song of longing. A song that many people in many different professions would be able to relate to. It certainly wasn't what the original song had been about, but cocaine is a hell of a drug. Bob took the song home and worked his magic on it with, with his unique set of skills. That was the reason he'd been recruited in the first place, to sculpt rough rock into beautiful marble sculptures. Beth had to undergo some severe tweaking and changes before it became the song that it ended up being. I think that it's ended up being um, a, a classic. I mean, people still talk about it. Bob told interviewer Tim McFate in 2012, Beth was born on piano, and my vision for Beth was born in the living room on my piano. That's me on piano, on the recording. I always had it in my mind that this was a piano piece. There's more acoustic guitar on the track, actually, now that you're mentioning it. There's more of it in my new mix. At that time, Bob was talking about Destroyer Resurrected. Still, the underlying material recorded is the same on both of those versions. That acoustic guitar was recorded by Dick Wagner, a session player who was brought in to the recording sessions to provide additional guitars on several tracks. Having performed on melodic songs such as Alice Cooper's Only Women Bleed, he told Ken Sharp he wished that he'd written it, thinking it a beautiful song and also a prospective hit. Beck, though, wouldn't make any sense as a title to those who didn't know the inspiration for the song. And there was also, supposedly, a possible confusion with Jeff Beck. Still, it made more sense to make it sung to a more obvious female character, and Beth was the obvious choice. Neil Bogart's wife, Elizabeth, went by that name. Hmm. Paul, in his autobiography, clearly still had mixed feelings about the song. Let's take a listen to that quote from the audio version of Face the Music. Bob also wrote the lion's share of Beth, 
using a few lines and a melody Peter brought in. Peter had a co-writer on every song he ever wrote because he couldn't really write. Song structure and concepts like making your lyrics rhyme were totally lost on him. In the case of Beth, Bob wrote most of it, even though the original idea Peter brought in had already been done with a co-writer. To get the vocal for Beth, Bob had to record Peter singing the song probably a dozen times and cobble together a single version from the passable parts of those takes. Peter's chances of being able to sing a song off the cuff were about as good as my chances of throwing a penny and hitting the moon. While Bob may have taken the original idea and injected it with its undeniable character and finesse, he had felt it important to ensure that at least one of Peter's ideas was represented on the album and that he was involved in the creative process. But having the song included on the album wasn't a sure thing. I got busted by everybody for Beth. It was a big time fight to get a song like that anywhere near Kiss. I mean, phew, you know, people just didn't want to oh. Peter Chris told John Swenson for Rolling Stone magazine, Kiss is a strange group. A lot of voting. They didn't want to do the song. The kids aren't going to accept it, they said. Gene was against it because he said it didn't fit the concept. Peter also recalled Gene and Paul turning down the song in an interview with David Leaf in Behind the Mask. He commented, I used to come in with tons of material, and Gene and Paul were always turning it down, saying, that's not our style. They were doing most of the writing, and I felt I wasn't contributing. When I came in with Beth, the reaction was, what the hell is this? We don't do ballads. And I kept insisting, this is really good, and I'd like to do it. Bob Ezrin finally said, let's do it. Let's try something new. For Peter, recording the song was certainly a challenge, and behind the mask again, he asserted that Gene and Paul were intimidating him during the vocal session, treating it like a joke until Bob asked them to leave. It was a very difficult um, uh, performance to, get, to do in the studio. It's not an easy song to sing by any stretch of the imagination, but particularly for a guy who wasn't really a vocalist. Um, and he did a great job, and uh, uh, I think he, he surprised himself, I think when it was over. I, I think he was quite sure that it was just crap and I was going to hate it. And when we comped his vocal and we played it back for him, he was like, wow, you know, I did that? Whoa, man, I'm good. You know? And now it's become his signature. You know, right. It's like his biggest moment. His vocal would be comped from five takes recorded at the record plant on the morning of January the 12th, 1976. There's nothing particularly unusual about comping a vocal take or the number of takes he recorded. The same is often done for guitar solos, since the whole object is to provide the highest consistent quality, which may not be always producible through a single take. It's part of the recording process. It's no big deal. Making the song special and capturing Bob Ezrin's vision, the orchestration was recorded at A&R Recording Studios during a three-and-a-half-hour session on the afternoon of January the 13th. Conducted and orchestrated by H.A. McMillan with concertmaster Gene Orloff, 25 musicians were engaged. But we really didn't know what to do with it. Rock bands didn't do ballads, least of all in the midst of a concerted push for rock and roll credibility. The only way we validated the idea that there were strings on it was because of Yesterday by the Beatles. If it was cool for the Beatles, then we could do it. Some of the notable players in the orchestration included flautist Julius Baker, violinist Max Polikoff, bassist Russ Savakas, and reed players William Slappin and Romeo Penke. Naturally, many of the musicians were well-known on the scene, doing sessions with other recording artists, both in the classical field and popular music of the era. 
When fully recorded, according to Bill Alcoyne, Gene and Paul still wanted the song taken off the album. Fortunately, Bill prevailed, also thinking the song a hit. And it's just as well. By the time it was issued as a single, Destroyer had already fallen off the Billboard album charts after a run of 20 weeks where it peaked at number 11. That was impressive and certainly built on the success of the Alive album, but it wasn't what the band needed. They were desperate. Keeping the show on the road consumed money. Their manager, Bill O'Coin, took 25% of monies generated off gross rather than net, and their new business managers, signed prior to the start of the Destroyer tour, Glickman Marks also took their cut. Kiss was literally hemorrhaging money and record sales were flagging. The merchandising machine was still in its infancy and not a significant contributor to income. By the summer, even with the band on tour in North America, the album had rapidly dropped out of the top 40 and by late August it was gone. The album's first single, Shouted Out Loud, had managed to reach the top 40 and impressively it pushed the album sales near the 900,000 unit mark. Flaming Youth, the second single, had stiffed. It charted for just three weeks and peaked at 74, even with a pretty picture sleeve. Detroit Rock City, which Beth was then the B-side for, hadn't even charted. The label had also resorted to a gimmick, reissuing the first three albums as a package, the originals. It did its job and kept money flowing in. The release of Detroit Rock City, though, was a deliberate ploy. The label had hoped to benefit from a strong regional popularity of the band and the anthemic nature of the song. What they hadn't counted on was for one of their respected DJs not liking the track and preferring its B-side. Her opinion mattered. Neil Bogart had divorced his first wife, Elizabeth, known to her friends as Beth, in September 1975, and then recently married Kiss's former co-manager, Joyce Biowitz, in May of that year. Neil hated that the band had written a song with the name, and according to Larry Harris, a Casablanca label executive, Neil thought that the band were making fun of him, and he promised to bury the song. Surreptitiously, with Neil on vacation in Mexico, Larry made the call to allow the single to be flipped, and instead to have Beth played, with the label having their promoters recommend the flip in certain core markets. That's when something strange started to happen. Radio stations turned over the record and started playing Beth, instead of Detroit Rock City, and it quickly became a huge hit. Beth was a breakthrough single, establishing the record. Now, rather than having a hit with a live record and then sinking back down, others soon caught on and Casablanca quickly rushed re-released the song as the album's fourth single. They caught a break when it caught on and crossed over to AM radio. It was similar to what had happened with Aerosmith's Dream On, and one may well wonder whether that had any impact on the decisions that were being made. After debuting on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in early September, the single steadily rose. It ultimately hit a high position of number 7 on December the 4th. The single also benefited sales of the back catalogue. Dressed to Kill returned to the charts, and Alive, which had nearly dropped out of the top 200, returned for an additional 65 weeks. Destroyer itself was certified platinum by the RIAA on November the 11th. Beth became the band's first and only top 10 single during the original's era. The live version of Rock and Roll All Night had stalled at number 12, and even I Was Made for Loving You wouldn't match it in 1979. Beth remains the band's highest-charting single in the United States, with Forever only just failing to match it in 1990. Beth also became the band's first RIAA-certified gold single,
being certified at that sales level for 500,000 units on January the 5th, 1977. Perhaps it shouldn't have been surprising. Some critics had responded positively to the song, even if it, the album, and production had alienated massive factions within the Kiss Army. Dana Sue Jackson wrote in an April 1976 review for the Detroit Free Press, their one unexpected break from hard rock is for Beth. So many bands have recorded at least one self-pitying or partying song about life on the road, and Kiss has done plenty of those. Now they finally struck a note of sincerity. Behind a coat of sappy strings, the lyrics are some of the most tender and effective yet for that sort of song. Even these crazy rock harlequins have feelings too. Even Rolling Stone magazine was positive, with David McGee writing in a March 1976 feature. Along with taking some new directions, Chris's lyrical ballad Beth, for example, proves him to be the group's best singer and may even find its way onto some M.O.R. playlists. Though, to be fair, in a later album review, John Millward described the album as featuring two bloated ballads. Beth was the little song that could, and did, regardless of what some of those close to it thought about it or continued to think about it. As Gene Simmons later described the situation, where rock and roll all night and alive made Kiss stars, Beth and Destroyer made the band superstars, and it scared them to death. But I really felt strongly that the song had merit and that there was radio potential. And, um, oh man, people threatened my life after they heard that song. Seriously. Like you destroyed the band. Oh, totally. Ruined the band. They, you know, they'll never be the same. I'm going to be, I'm going to be the guy who goes down in history as the guy who killed Kiss. <laughs> For the next album, they did a complete 180 and ran back to the safety of hard rock and hard rock only. Adding to its accolades, Beth was the co-winner of the People's Choice Award for Favorite New Song of 1976. On January the 18th, 1977, the band was informed that Beth had been voted one of the five top favorites by the American public in the People's Choice Awards Favorite Song category. In the second round of voting by 10,000 participants, the single tied with the satirical novelty Disco Dug by Rick Dees and his cast of idiots. With the band on the road, Lydia was nominated to attend the awards ceremony on February the 10th on their behalf, once they'd been informed of the vote result on January the 26th. With actress Goldie Hawn presenting, Lydia Chris accepted the award on behalf of the band while they continued to tour. Obviously, Beth is my favorite song, not only because it's how Peter feels about me, but how every man feels when he's away from the woman he loves. Kiss is performing tonight, and they just want me to thank everyone for this great honor, and I want to personally thank Kiss. I love you. Kiss provided a pre-recorded acceptance message and a clip of Peter performing the song during their January the 28th show in Detroit. Gene, though, hadn't been sure that he even wanted the band on TV, so Peter was lucky. Inevitably, the song was added to the band's live set in November 1976. It provided a stark reminder nightly to any doubters. A recording from Tokyo on the 1977 Japan tour was used when the Kiss Alive 2 album was constructed. Beth was also used in an acoustic form for a key scene in Kiss's television movie, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. 
Not to be confused with the acoustic guitar recorded for the original studio version in 1976, session player John Tropez had recorded a new version at Electric Lady Studios on April the 25th, 1978. It was synced to Peter's original vocal track. Peter is succinct in his appraisal of the song in his autobiography. He applauds Bob Ezrin for taking the original idea and turning it into a masterpiece. As he put it, now I really understand why he was considered such a stone-cold genius. The drummer shouldn't write hits. <laughs> God forbid a drummer writes the biggest hit in the band. You are tortured forever. It's like, trust me, it's, it, you are tortured forever. They actually tried to put it on a B-side, so we've got to forget about it, as we say, forget about it. But somebody turned it over, and man, thank you, because it, it's been really a good song for me. Uh, a lot of emotion into that tune, and yes, it and you was wrote, and you wrote it years before you were even in the band. Right? Oh God, like ten years earlier. Yeah, I mean, and a guy at the late Stan Penridge. Yeah, we wrote it as a joke, and then turned it into a really important piece of music. I think. Boys. Mm-hmm. 